everybody. Welcome to The Bold Platform. My name's Adrian, and I'm the creator and host of this podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this is your first episode, it is really awesome to have you here. And if you are a returning listener, thank you for coming back and listening to another amazing story. Um, before we get started, we just want to let you know that, um, you know, if there's, there's sometime is swearing and some adult subject matter in our podcast. So if you've got little ones around, just um, I just want to give you that warning at the top. It's nothing too highly inappropriate, but I just want to give you that um, that little message so that you might decide to listen to this another time and maybe you don't have little ones in the car or running around the house um, if you've got little kids in your, in your world. So the podcast for those that have never listened before is about sharing stories of women throughout Australia or women who are girls as well, or those that identify as female from around Australia who are really working on amazing projects or hobbies or have completed really amazing projects um, that are trying to leave a, a community group better than how they found it and having a really a really amazing social impact and contribution to their community. So this episode is um, probably one of the first that we've done where we're talking to somebody who has completed um, more of a one-off project um, for a social impact cause. So I'm really excited um, today to welcome Ange from Goodwill Hunting to chat about the ride that she has recently done at the start of 2019 and to let us know what it was about um, stand-up events, the charity that she was um, raising money for that really hit a chord with her. So welcome Ange, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So let's get straight into us, um, straight into it, and tell us what Goodwill Hunting um, is all about. So essentially, Goodwill Hunting—it um, was a charity ride that I organised. It literally it started very, very small. I just said that I'd ride from Adelaide to Melbourne, but it ended up being a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> but I rode, um, I vowed to ride solo from Adelaide to Melbourne to raise money for. Um, a group called Stand Up Events Melbourne. So they are Melbourne-based, so I'm not sure if Sydney listeners or um, heaps of Australians would know it, but um, Andrew Green is the uh, CEO and founder of it, and they work to eradicate homophobia in all sports. And really they stem from just um, a message of fairness and equality for everyone, not just in terms of sexuality, but just really in terms of life. But, yeah, they focus on homophobia and they focus a lot on homophobic behavior in sport and they're just really trying to eradicate it where possible wow because yeah and so distance wise how long is that ride so the ride I wrote the course and the most common one goes around the Great Ocean Road but considering it was just it was a that's a thousand kilometers I did an 800 kilometer route instead more inland I went through some of the coolest places like Ballarat and Horsham and Stor and Ararat. So it was really nice. Yeah, that's amazing. And how long did that take you? So I scheduled it for about five and a half days and essentially um, it was actually for my 21st birthday. So mm-hmm. I planned to arrive home the day after my 21st mm-hmm. and it was five and a half days purely just because I wanted to raise as much money over that time as possible. Yeah. So I- raising money before and it was a it was a pretty hectic campaign because I've never organized a campaign before and I think people assumed that I was writing for an existing campaign when essentially it was pretty much my own one um, that I had to kind of just make up from scratch and then 
follow through. So yeah, five and a half days it was in the end. That is some serious bike time. Um, How did you um, find out about stand-up events or why was um, the subject around equality and also eradicating homophobia in sports something that was um, a cause that you felt you wanted to do something about? Well, I'm just such an advocate for everyone having equal chances in in all aspects of life. Mm. So just – and what Angie was doing, so I met her, I don't know, I think just in passing really, and we'd only met maybe twice before, but um, I heard what she was doing and I've heard her speak and if you ever hear her speak, she's in like she can sell – ice to Eskimos kind of person like she's just an incredible speaker but really passionate about the cause and I realized after asking more questions I realized that she was trying to bring this whole thing to fruition on her own like it's just this one man show with a couple of people happy here and there and she's given up like this is her full-time job she doesn't get paid for it and it's hard stuff for her and um Monash she teamed up with Monash to do world first research into how to eradicate homophobic behaviour in um, grassroots level sport. Mm-hmm. And with the findings from that, she was to implement programs to implement in schools and in young people using, you know, football stars and ath- elite athletes that would also get behind the cause. But in order to do this research, Monash required $100,000. Wow. Yeah, and to get $100,000 from a charity campaign is so hard. Mm. Like. I, and a small one too. It's not like she's, you know, um, you know, you know, are you okay? Day campaigns, where you know, quite. Yeah, they actually, already have like an established brand that most yeah. people would have heard of before. Yeah, and they've got a huge team. They've got a huge marketing budget, and mm. you know, they they do amazing work. But she just doesn't have that. It's sure. Self driven, but at the same time, she's so impactful. Um, like her family has a history of. They're all elite sports people. Mm-hmm. So her pop was like a 22 Grand Slam champion. Her dad was a Hall of Famer for Hawthorne Football Club. Wow. My father ended up playing for Hawthorne as well. And then um, he actually owns a brand called Jagged with Chris Judd. Mm-hmm. So they now own the um, like Athleisure Activewear brand. And then her other brother uh, is actually gay. And I think that's where she realised the discrepancy and yeah. – yeah, the real kind of exclusion that LGBTIQ community people feel, mm. in, particularly in sport. So obviously with such an elite sporting background in the family, I think he experienced some pretty crazy discrimination to the point where he withdrew from sport. Wow. Um, yeah, and, like, it happens to so many people and we just don't see it and we don't recognise it. Like, I have cousins and my sister's in the LGBTIQ community and a lot of my close friends are. And, yeah, exclusion happens all the time and especially in sport. And it's, I don't know, just for some reason really, really hit home with me because sporting is my life. Mm. And, you know, I love sport throughout school and I could just not imagine what it would feel like to have to feel like you would have to withdraw for that reason, not because you weren't good or not because you had an injury but simply because you like the same sex and that was it. 
It's just so, it seems so foreign as a straight woman. It just seems so foreign, but also with having friends from within that community, just in other types of events that we go to or other life situations that we end up in, I can definitely see that the things that, you know, a huge part of Australia takes for granted, it's just not something that it's just, they just, their experience is just so different. Yeah, and, like, there's so much awareness in terms of racism. And, Mm. again, Mm. it's false under fairness and equality, so I'm all about eradicating that too. But, you know, there's a reason why not one footballer has come out as gay yet. Correct. Yet because, you know, I'm not, I can't say I'm certain, but I'm very, very sure that there are some in there or or out there. And Mm. there's a reason why they haven't come out. And it's not because of any other reason than fearing vilification or fearing exclusion. And so I do school talks about um, with Bicycle Network. They've just got me on their program to get young people into sport a bit more and I talk about goodwill hunting and the way I always put it and the way they seem to always really hit home for them is um, if you set a scene, so you're running onto the oval, a football oval, say, and you're running, running, running and you're so excited to play and the first thing you hear is you're a faggot, faggot, lesbos. Oh, she's a dyke. Oh, look at those lesbos on the field. You're kind of just like that is really foul sounding. Mm. And you're like it's so far-fetched, like, oh, you really exaggerated it. But I can promise you that it's it happens all the time and probably worse too. And more than we'd probably like to acknowledge. Yeah, totally. And um, I think... We don't ever bring light to it because it's it's so crude, mm. um, but it's so prevalent. And you know, there's stats. You know, the first LGBTIQ community. I think the stat was something like they're four times more likely to commit suicide than a hetero person. Yeah. And the first age they'll ever ever um, try is the age of sixteen, which is for me. I'm just like. You just you just get less speechless, really, yeah. to think of something like that. But yeah, it happens all the time. So yeah, I don't. It just really hit home with what she was doing, and so I just thought that I could, if I could do anything, then I would. And so, why did you pick bike riding? Uh, so I have been cycling since I was sixteen, pretty much every single day. So I've got a wow. I've got a car. I've got my license. I just cannot stand being in a car. Really? I don't know what it, like I just, I could probably count on my fingers how many times I've driven this year and I could count the amount of times I've caught public transport on one hand in the last five years or something like that. I just, and I travel everywhere on my bike. It's my whole life. I think um, I remember year 12 we had, we had formal and I'm just, everyone knows that I'm, always have my bike that we genuinely asked if I was going to ride to formal. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I wouldn't put it past myself. You put it past me. <laughs> yeah. So I just, it's like for me, everyone, you know, the world's very much about mindfulness and meditation and being mm-hmm. present um, mm-hmm. at the moment. And for me, it's, it's all of that in one. So I reflect a lot on my bike. So I use it a lot as a, reflection tool mm-hmm. um it's for me it's very much therapeutic and I know you just get around faster I yeah I really really loved it so the bike 
the reason why I became a bike rider is because that bike that I rode was being auctioned off for stand-up events. Mm-hmm. So it's a complete custom bike in these amazing colours, like pink and blue and yellow. It was just so me. And I had just recently had my bike stolen prior to finding this bike. Oh. And I said, do you know what? I Just to my two followers on Instagram, I was like, guys, if we win this bike in this auction, if we raise enough money to win this bike, I vow to ride it from Adelaide to Melbourne for stand-up events. And that was just like a throwaway sentence. Well, you've put it out there now. <laughs> I was like, put it out there. I can't go back. And then it went out and honestly before I knew it, we had raised something like, I don't know, $4,000 in two weeks mm. from just a bunch of people. It wasn't like major brand sponsoring. It was just a bunch of people that were like, this would be awesome. And everyone knew that I just lost a bike and how much I love cycling. And obviously they care about the cause, um, but they got around it. And that night there was a gala where they auctioned it off and I had set a limit where I wouldn't spend, I think it was over 6500 because I knew that we could raise the extra 2500 if yep. need be to cover it. And I was at this nervous 20-year-old and never been to an auction in my life and my best friend and um, was there and she had to pinch me to to get me to yell out numbers because I didn't know what to do. <laughs> me and I'd be like, ah, oh, 2,000. And we just went like that. And before I knew it, um, there, was, there was a message that went around that said that if I'd won it, I'd write it to Adelaide to Melbourne, from Adelaide to Melbourne. And I think that just got around the room and people were really generous and not overbidding because the bike itself was worth around 10,000 or it was advertised at 10,000. We ended up winning it for six and a half and then that pretty much kick-started a much bigger campaign than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So how do you even begin to start preparing to ride 800 kilometres, <laughs> like both physically but also mentally and, you know, planning a fundraising campaign and needing time off work, I'm assuming? Yes. So, do you know, what? weirdly the physical part, it was a, I didn't bother me really. Like mm. I, I obviously trained for it, but it wasn't my priority purely because after I put the word out, the whole thing actually became like 80% effort into the campaign itself and 20% effort into the bike ride. Yeah. Because I put the word out and then, you know, my friends at Lululemon reached out and they were like, this is an epic cause. How can we support it? And in after one meeting, I went from being like, yeah, I'm just going to ride it. I'm just going to ride my little bike and just get money where it comes into they were like, let's aim big. Let's aim for 50000 Let's see if we can get there. And then and then they started being talked about, let's see if we can get into some radios and some um, local newspapers and then the, this and that. And I honestly, it just went so, so over my head because at that time, to paint a picture, I was still second year uni. Um, I was still running my food truck. I was uh, working probably four other jobs, just retail at the time as a uni side job because I wasn't taking any money from the food truck because that mm-hmm. in itself was a social enterprise. Um, so really I was just had no experience in this kind of campaigning mm-hmm. and 
you know, they were talking about press releases and I was like, I have no idea what that is. And I just kind of met and my best friend um, Sarah just happened to have a very huge following on Instagram and is very experienced in things like this. And so she had a lot of connections and then, yeah, one thing led to another and um, I found myself kind of self-organising charity bike rides that we flew to Sydney to do a charity bike ride in a spin studio. Oh, wow. yeah, it was because people kept reaching out to be like, how can I help? How can we help? Carbon-based mm. um, cycling apparel company, Peddler, were like, let's make you a custom kit to match the bike. And so Lulu and Peddler got together and made gave me three kits completely custom-made. And mind you, I don't know if you know much about cycling, but kits cost a lot of money. Like, I cannot ride a bike to save my life, <laughs> so... My best friend will be listening to this, absolutely cracking up laughing because she's always like, you know, I can't ride a bike. So it's very funny that I'm interviewing you. So no, tell me, I was just about to say, so for those playing at home, what does a kit include? Yeah. <laughs> like, mm, yeah, I'll just smile and not. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so, so if you have ever been to, you know, um, a restaurant and those old men come in with their really tight lycra and they waddle around mm-hmm. that that's pretty much a kit okay get the lots pants. of lycra yeah it's pretty much yeah lots of lycra so close fitting stuff but the you get the shorts which is actually a bib so people don't realize but um they've got attached suspenders that go over your shoulders oh. so they stay up and then on top of the bib you wear your jersey which is like the zip up t-shirt thing that's mm-hmm. tight and then they also gave me a vest for wind protection. So that goes over the jersey itself. Wow. Yeah. And then inside the pants, they're called bib shorts. There's a chamois. So it's like a little pillow that makes it a little bit easier on your bum when you're riding. Yeah. yeah. So that's why the, the guy, so if it makes all, all makes sense now for non-cyclists, that's why all the old men that you see, they waddle funny. Yeah. It's like they're walking with a big pad in between the legs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a big, huge, like triple maternity pad size thing. Ah, okay, that makes so much sense. I see them at the coffee shop all the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now I'll know. That's the story, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they got around and then Sarah had amazing connects um, to somehow land. Honda gave us a car for a week. And they said, you know, we can't give you financial support, but we can give you a car um, and you can wrap it and make it look however you want it to make it look. Oh, that is so incredible. Right? It was, I was just, and me being so naive and so, like, still young, I just, I know people are awesome and that's always been my thing. I just love society and humanity and I always have faith in it. Like, a lot of times I don't, sometimes I don't lock off my bike for, like, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes because I know I just have faith in humanity a lot. Mm. And so for people to go this far out of their way and a big company like Holden um, was awesome because we didn't really promise. We promised a few things in terms of like a, um, a lot of kind of uh, people on Instagram with bigger followings also got behind me and they happened to be friends so they were um, you know, posting about it. And that was kind of the exposure that we could give them. But other than that, there was not much we could give Holden. So for them to go out of their way and wrap the car as well 
and gave us a brand new car and it was a new model too was you know it might just be on me and then um a melbourne-based company called sweater club who does custom sweaters decided to donate we um we called the community or anyone that was wanted to support the third wheel community mm-hmm. um and then we made third wheel tops and sweater club said that for every third wheel top sold 50 percent of it would go to the campaign and everything that went into the campaign went to stand-up events i didn't take yes. a single dime mm-hmm. um and you know sweater club ended up selling like those tops just went crazy and Sweater Club donated $2,000 of just those 50% donations from Tops. So people, there was an order from Texas that was probably one of the coolest things, mm. one of the third world tees, but otherwise it was just being shipped all around to whoever, like Sydney and Queensland and, um, yeah, all sorts of cool places. And so, you know, people, people and brands were just helping out where they could and really offering all this support. And it really proved to show to me that the topic itself is not taboo anymore. Yeah. Like people are happy to talk about it and people are happy to openly support it. Mm. So it comes to the first day of the ride. What's going through your head? What does that day look like? So all like that was actually a bigger relief than all the other days put together. Mm. Three month of can three months of campaigning before that. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna lie, it was pretty brutal. Yeah, like having to, you know, because I was just trying to get sponsors or trying to get people to donate money. I was trying to get a bit more press around it because I'm an all in kind of person. I'm like, if we're gonna get press, we're gonna try to get all of them kind of. Thing. Yeah. Like we had some talks to the project and she was seeing if she could try to squeeze us in and there was, you know, talks to um, Sarah had some connects in Channel 10 and then Angie had some in just radio shows. We had a few radio interviews and stuff as well and then local papers started picking up on it and that was just a real hustle because um, it was hard to explain to people because because I was the face of it but I was also the organiser of it. Yeah. Everything was on me mm. in the end, um, and the and the raising money part of it, like plus physically trying to get ready. Of course, yeah, and so you know trying to organize logistics again was all me. Mm. So I had to obviously organize the amount of days, the exact route, how where I was going to stay. Mm. Like that in itself was like I didn't know anyone in between Adelaide and Melbourne, mm. and um, so all of that come the final day. By the, by the time I had to start writing, it was the biggest relief because from yeah. then I had handballed. I said to everyone, I said, guys, this is the time where if you want to help, this is when it's going to be because I can't just set up, up. Yeah. I'm helpless in this time. So the first day was awesome. Like my family are just the best and my, like I'm a very open person, but my, when my sister came out, um, my parents were really, really struggled to understand it. Right. Really. It was a, a messy kind of situation. Right. They're, um, they're quite traditional. Like I'm completely Vietnamese. They're mm-hmm. very, you know, um, not super religious, but they're very much traditional. And it's Got just, you. you know, not traditional to 
big day mm-hmm. at all in Vietnam or the Vietnamese community. Mm. And so, um, and that happened a while ago, probably like five years ago. So it's okay. kind of just something that we don't really talk about. And like obviously us sisters and my sister and my other sister and my brother, we're just so fine with it because that's just how society is. But right. um, yeah, my parents are still, we're still a little bit like we didn't ever speak to them about it. But they, my mum and my sisters, my dad was at work. They all drove over to Adelaide because that's so, I drove first. Mm. And they drove and flew over to surprise me to make sure that they were there for my first day. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the day before I was just going to a cafe with, so my um, two of my best mates, Nick and Sarah, came with me as my support crew. And so they drove, they took whole week off work and they drove all of us over there and we were all having uh, lunch together and then up turns my family. Oh my gosh. And so my brother who's 15 at the time, my sister who's immediately older than me, my older sister um, and my mum and my cousin actually all came and they, I think a couple of them had flown, a couple of them had driven um to make sure they were there the day before. And then I thought they were going home that night, but they actually turned to the start line, turned up to the start line and made sure that they were there as well. Oh. So, yeah, it was, it was very special. It was, yeah. it was kind of just like the beginning of the end, like the beginning of the celebration of how mm-hmm. successful the campaign was and realising how supportive people really are. Like to, the fact that I saw my mum there supporting a cause that's all about the LGBTIQ community. I was like, that takes balls for you, mum. So, you know, kudos to you Yeah, for getting around it. So the first day was um, was actually awesome. I had a really awesome first day. And where did you stay that, um, that first night? Uh, we stayed at a place called Wellington Courthouse. Mm-hmm. So that was that first day was a 140-kilometre day. Mm-hmm. And um, logistically how it normally worked was I would ride uh, a distance and then we potentially sometimes had to then drive from that from where I finished to um, the accommodation because there wasn't going to be accommodation exactly 140 kilometres in. Got you. So um, we kind of went, uh, the Wellington Courthouse was 100 kilometres from Adelaide and Wellington Courthouse were incredible. They reached out and said, here, we'll give you a full room to yourself for complete free, of course. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So they donated the whole room and they said, don't worry about anything else. Like, here's your place. What else do you need kind of thing? Mm. And I was like, thank you. And I never met these people. I met them for like five minutes when I arrived and they just let us do our own thing. Um, so we stayed there and that was in Tail and Bend and – after I hit 100 kilometres, which was an awesome ride, I had a really good ride. Mm. Nick, who is part, was part of my support crew, he came on and off the bike throughout the day just when he felt like or when he thought I needed company and he came on at 100 kilometres and then all of a sudden the weather turned and this huge storm was hitting and I was like, oh, shit. I was like, I need to hit this 140 today because if I do, don't do the 140 today, the next day was going to be brutal. Mm. So we were just... For the last 20 kilometres, we were pushing in this headwind and this rain coming back to Wellington Courthouse. And I, it was 
like Nick the legend. Like this was his first his first ride with a road bike with cleats in his life and he rode 400 kilometres in total in this campaign. That's incredible. He was, yeah, he literally just, I just taught him how to use cleats. So cleats are the things on your shoes that you can Yeah, yeah, I do know that. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm good. It's like the only bit about bikes. I know the wheels, the pedals, the things you put your feet into. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) And he just learned how to use it. And it was just hilarious because I was like, Nick, you're going to fall. Everyone falls when they use cleats for the first time. And he fell and... And literally it was like he's probably his second or third ride when he rode with me and he was riding on like freeways from Adelaide to Melbourne and he just he just did it. And so he took the headwind for me because he knew I hated winds with a passion mm. and I just stood, I just rode right on his tail mm. and he just kind of just took it home on that day. So that was, mm, the first day was a great day. I really, really enjoyed that day. It was physically, like I said before, I didn't mind too much about the physical um, effort in terms of training and everything. I pretty much, I backed myself quite well to just get through it. And the thing with for me was like I wasn't trying to do it in record speed, so I could have as many breaks as I wanted. And it was my campaign, so I wasn't going to anyone's schedule but mine, which is why I was so fine with the physical part of it. I knew I could make it in the end. And what about the next day and the the next days after that? Mm, so the next day was the I hated this next day and I'm self-proclaimed positive Polly mm. I'm like yeah happy about everything but this next day was just it was 150 kilometers and we we're riding from just past Talon Bend and I had to arrive to um, border town so literally on the border of Victoria and um South Australia Mm -hmm. and it was flat which sounds like it should be fun but it really isn't Mm -hmm. and I had a headwind the whole way for the 150 kilometers and for someone who already hates winds like give me hills give me all sorts of weird things like give me rain I'd still rather that but give me a headwind and I am having the worst time of my life so I had a headwind for the whole time and it wasn't like a light one. It was a pretty, you know, good effort one. Yeah. And it was just relentless, like just to have to, if you have ever even just walked in wind blowing in your face, it's relentless. really annoying. And except I was riding 150 kilometres in it for the whole day. And there was just trucks after truck after truck because there was no, this specific day there was no other route. I had to be on the freeway. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so there was just trucks coming past me every second and they were so strong that on the other side of the road, if they um, drove past me fast enough, it'll um, get me off balance. So, like, it'll kind of shake my bike up and me up. So I had to, like, brace onto the bike every time I saw a truck coming the opposite way. And then if it was coming the same way direction that I was going, it was going fast enough to, like, like, pull the wind behind me and like kind of propel me forward it was just a weird day really but it was sounds just just hectic it was a mental that day was probably the biggest mental push for me yeah like I said again physically I'm so fine I'll just push through but mentally I was in all sorts I was like 
oh, I just wanted, I get every 10 kilometers, I'd just be crying for a break. Mm. And to have 15 breaks in a day really ruins any kind of routine. And I was, um, Sarah and Nick kind of latched on. And it takes quite a lot for me to become at least mentally, you know, I'm quite resilient. So it takes a lot for me to just become a little bit on the edge and they kind of noticed it. And so Nick jumped on and started, you know, cracking jokes. And um, they every time I had a stop, they made sure that one of my close friends was on the phone and they'd FaceTime a friend to get me through. So they'd FaceTime a few and they'd surprise me with a, just a really nice kind of company for a period of time and then I'd get back on and do it again. And Nick would start, you know, telling jokes or singing songs or literally just doing anything they could just to keep me in mentally in the game. What incredible and, friends. Yeah, they're one that's what I really I just owe a lot to them. They are next level friends. And you know, I didn't get I don't get cranky. I just get like silent. Mm. And for me who's I'm so verbose, it's weird. And so I left, I think I left the house at seven and we didn't get back to the accommodation until five. That's how long the day was. Wow. And I was just so ready for it to be over. And when it was over, it was, oh, the best moment because the accommodation for that night was the best of the whole campaign. Again, it was donated. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was a cottage um, on at Border Town and we had the whole cottage to ourselves. And Joe, who owns it, it's called Dunnellan Cottage. It's it's on Airbnb and I reached out through Airbnb just to be like, hey, would you donate a night? But the hard thing about Airbnb is that you're not actually allowed to send links. Yeah. So you can't send Facebook pages, Instagram pages, links. You can't even say FB or IG because it's censors. So you oh, wow. can't send a number. You, you literally can't send anything, like anything that's potentially marketing or gives you more um of a profile than Airbnb does. So I couldn't give them any kind of credibility in my calls except to just describe it then and there because I couldn't be like, check out the website or like I'll show you we're real by, I don't know, listening to this because they just, nothing worked. And so I just said, would you do it? And she responded like within the day and said, yes, of course. And I'd never met her in my life. And it was like an expensive, not expensive, but it was like a 12 fit 12 people kind of cottage yeah it's not yeah, hundred dollar pub accommodation yeah it wasn't like a shed or just a bed on mm. like in her house full mm. cottage and they had this big farm and had all this um they were like joe had reached out to sarah to be like or to me or someone but she just said what are your um food what are your favorite foods um do you have food intolerances whatever she's like because i'd like to have you make you dinner and so she made this incredible, like, vegetarian feast with all these things to make sure they would fit with everyone's food schedules. And then she had dinner ready. And she had, we had dinner with her husband and her son and in their home. And then the next morning they were like, hey, come, we want to show you the shearing of the sheep. So they were giving us, like, they were took us in their tractor and they were like, come watch the shearing of the sheep before you go. And then... They were like, you know, um, they were like, oh, let us ride you to the border so you can see the actual border crossing, the official one where the line is because mm. I wouldn't have crossed it with the route that I was going. And so they, he jumped on his bike and he rode me to it and start, started the next day. 
and they were, you know, they filled the fridge up with breakfast food to make sure that I was had breakfast. And oh, they were just they just honestly went out of their way and I've never met them before. It, it was just goes to show you, doesn't it? It's like you know, similar to what we were saying before we started recording, is like there's so much stuff going on in the world. It just makes you lose a little bit of hope in humanity that just think all we're ever doing is like ripping each other apart and it's just like violence and aggression and bullying and all this. It's like, no, there are people who will just give whatever they possibly can to complete strangers totally. you know, if they feel that there's an alignment with the cause. Yeah, and that's, you know, that was my biggest thing. Well, that was one of my biggest learnings, wasn't that? Mm. That as a society, yes, we can raise money. That wasn't my biggest realisation. My biggest realisation that, and I guess one of the main things I was trying to get out of this cause was, yes, obviously money for, um, for stand-up events, but the other thing was to show people or to make people realise without, I'm not really a preacher, but mm. I, like, I like showing through example, and I just wanted to show people how supportive the world really was and there was and distance wasn't a barrier Mm. so for people in you know the countryside where stereotypically you'd think they wouldn't be supportive of a cause like this Mm -hmm. were the most giving Mm. like it all all it took me was for me to tell them what it was for for them to be like we need to get behind this and um, like I'm not in the LGBTIQ community, but I would imagine if you were and you did see that kind of level of support, it just make you have a bit more faith in terms of where society's going. Yeah, and your town and the businesses that are in your town. Exactly, and like you, and I think it just gives you that warmth and that sense of security that no, it's actually not that bad out there, mm. and people really do care about you. Because yes. I imagine for people in the minority groups, spend their whole lives feeling like nothing or yeah. worth not much mm. for them to feel like, oh, my God, the whole people are really getting behind Ange, which means they're getting behind us. What Ange stands for, yeah. And I was really just hoping that anyone in the community that is open or has come out or has, is yet to come out or, you know, is still kind of um, confused or feel excluded, I was just really hoping that they would use this and really see the deeper meaning of how awesome society really is and how supportive society really is about um, towards the LGBTIQ community because this was actually also uh, around the time that I was campaigning around the time that the yes vote was happening as well. Okay. Yeah, so it was all that same, um, I think it was voted in November and I started campaigning about September. So over that whole time it was campaigning and it was very touch and go with everything because I was still like I don't know if this is still stigmatized mm. but we're going to prove it that it's not and I did prove that it wasn't because mm. people were happy to talk about it and people were happy to support and people were happy to you know we raised twenty two thousand dollars that's incredible country. that is just yeah that blows my mind congratulations that is a huge huge feat thank you and like honestly I it was it didn't really click how huge that was until I really looked back at it and I was like, you know what, as many, the amount of brands that supported and the amount of companies that supported, like You Foods gave us food, um, Health Lab gave us food, Loving Earth gave us food, a a very small fruit and veg market gave us boxes of fruit and veg to Mm. take along with us, Um, Prana Chai, Green Street Juice, like 
I had endless amounts of food and accommodation, but when I look back at they didn't really give our financial um, uh, donation, which is like, mm-hmm. totally fine. So for me to see $22,000 without mm-hmm. a big corporate sponsorship was like that means it's hundreds of just average normal people mm-hmm. getting around this course. Yeah. That's like, you know, $30 here, $20 there, $50 here. Like there was probably three major donations of like two thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and one of it was actually my cousin's cousin, mm-hmm. um, and he did it as part of his insurance company, and another one called Klooper, and um, he's just an entrepreneur that really has supported me, and then the other one was Sweater Club that did the t-shirts, mm. but they were the only three really, and every uh, everything else was just, and mind you, like people forget that my immediate friendship group are all uni students. Yeah. So, again, to raise that much money just still for me blows my mind too. Totally. And what can stand-up events do with that sort of money or do you have some sort of sense of where that money would have gone to or the types of things that they could use an amount like that for? Yeah, 100%. So, like I said, the Monash needed $100,000. Mm-hmm. And so every single cent of that went to that research. To and start those, to start the, that research, yeah. And the programs. And so yeah. they've actually started the programs now. They've just laid it. Um, Angie's just uh, kind of rolled it out with a bunch of AFL players and elite mm-hmm. athletes who will be the ones that present the program. Mm-hmm. Because, sure, you could just get, you know, a bunch of people talking about it, but it's so much more impactful when it's actually people they see on TV kicking the ball around and you know she's really focusing on football because that's where it's probably most rife Mm. um and probably the most brutal and so yeah they've succeeded in starting the programs um and I think they're all still in just training to present them now so it all 100% went to stand-up events and to projects that um will benefit especially in the future the kind of landscape of how we tackle homophobic behaviour in sport. Mm. And, yeah. So talk us through the last day. What, Where is your head at when you wake up? How much of a ride have you got to go on that last day? Yeah, so the last day was the day after my 21st, which mm-hmm. meant the last night I spent was in my 21st. And, again, my family is so awesome. They, I, it was, I was in Ballarat for that last night and, again, mm-hmm. donated accommodation. Mm-hmm. Um, by Emerson, and he's just a person on an Instagram that Sarah had built a virtual friendship through. Mm-hmm. Sarah and Nick um, co-founded Match Maiden and Match Milk Bar, um, so a health food products and cafe. And Emerson has had used Match Maiden for a very long time, and he reached out and he said, "I've got a development." kind of house that I don't really use. Um, it's not really connected up with heaps at the moment, but you'll f- feel free to have it. Um, I'll give you the keys to it and you can just be there whenever you need to be there. And, again, like he just went out of his way to make sure that we were accommodated for. So we stayed there that night, but we went out to dinner because um, my Andrew Green, so the CEO of, of Standup, actually drove out to Ballarat to surprise oh. me. Wow. First. 
and another really good friend, Jimmy, caught the train down. Or actually, no, he carpooled with Angie. And mind you, they'd never really met before. Mm. They just banded together to be there for me. And um, obviously Nick and Sarah had spent the whole day just making me feel awesome. And I just, because I loved my bike, I just, I was in the happiest place I could be really on my 21st. Mm. Um, And then my family drove out to Ballarat again to surprise me again for my 21st. Um, And, yeah, we had dinner and I think I just spent the night like like kind of a, a little bit emotional more so because, I am someone who sees the best in people and in the world. And one of the things I struggle with is actually gratitude, not because I can't be grateful, but because a lot of the time I'm so grateful to the point where I don't know how to express it. Yes. And I was like, I really hope these people know how grateful I am for everything they've done for me in this time. You know, my family driving out to Adelaide and coming out to Ballarat and Angie going out of her way to drive out to Ballarat and Nick and Sarah taking all this time without a single complaint, making sure that everything was perfect for me. And in the background, I had given my sister Angie and another friend a role to organise the finish line party thing, which we had campaigned to be my 21st birthday, but invited everyone that wanted to support Good Hunting and wanted to see me arrive. That's so cool. Yeah, so in the background, they were organising that and I said, Guys, if this is the if you want to help with something, can you please do this? Because I'll be writing, and I don't really want to have to think about it. Of course, and yeah. And I just said I'll be at this place at this time, an Albert Park golf um, course, kind of lent us a space, um, like a really nice greenery space in Albert Park mm. to use. And Albert Park is where I trained a lot, and I love. And it's in Melbourne. It's got one of the most incredible views ever. And so to finish there was awesome. And for them to offer that place for free was amazing as well. Mm. And Yeah. And I just, that night I was kind of just thinking about everyone that had gotten involved. Someone donated money for petrol because they had really thought that far into it to be like, Andrew. Gosh. Yes. They said, hey, Andrew, who's covering your petrol? And I was like, oh, because a lot of it at the time I just went out of pocket really. Mm. And they were like, well, don't do that. What I'll I'll cover your petrol. So, you know, someone covered petrol. And I was just thinking about about all the things that people had done. Um, you know, the fruit and veg place in Adelaide wasn't actually open when I left, but one of my friends from Adelaide drove to get the fruit and veg, then drove out an hour and a half to Wellington Courthouse where I was staying first to drop off the fruit and veg and then drove back into Adelaide to make sure that I had it. Like just these little things that people were doing, like like the fact that Nick had ridden 400 kilometres for his first ever proper ride. Yeah. Make sure that he was there for me to make sure that I was mentally okay. And even then I'd probably only, like Nick and I had only been friends for maybe two months. Yeah, right. I was much closer with Sarah um, and he's Sarah's partner and he was like, no, of course I would do anything. And, you know, I was just having all these feels about all everyone doing everything. Yeah, it's overwhelming. I was, yeah, I was, I was like writing like these love letters to people being like, I really <laughs> appreciate you like with red pen because that's all I had in midnight in my bedroom being like, I need sleep for this next day. But I was just, I just had to do it. And I was yeah. literally writing paragraphs to people. And that next day, Jimmy had stayed over because he was like, you know, and I'll ride, um, I'll ride the last day with you. And that was a that was the shortest day out of all. It was 90 kilometres. Mm-hmm. 
perfect because we just cruised from Ballarat home. And, like, the morning was so funny because the whole ride I hadn't had a single puncture. And we woke up that morning and my bike was flat. But we were about seven kilometres from the actual town centre of Ballarat. And um, we were like, oh, that's fine. We'll drive into, we'll put all the bikes in the car. We'll drive into Ballarat Town Centre and just get uh, one of the bike mechanics to do it. Because it's a very, like, specific kind of tube. It was tubeless. It was tubeless, which means that when you do go on a small puncture, it sprays out this really fun glue and it seals itself. Wow. Yeah, it's really cool. And so, but this puncture had been big enough to where the um, glue didn't work. So I was like, oh, I don't really know how to change this. So I'll just bring it to the bike mechanics. So we go in the car, Sarah turns on the car and it's out of battery. And we were like, oh, shit. And the, the universe. <laughs> yeah, and it was parked in the garage with the nose in the garage. So we couldn't get a car. Oh, yeah. So we were just sitting there like, we have no idea what to do. Mm. And so we had we had some time though because it was a shorter day and I didn't have to be there till three. So we like had planned to not have to leave until say like 11, 30, 12 anyway. Mm. But Nick and Jimmy had to get on their bikes holding the wheel on their bikes and rode into town. Oh, no. So like with one hand on the bar, one hand holding my wheel into town. And it honestly would have looked like they had – Stolen, stolen, yeah, <laughs> stolen and dismantled a bike. <laughs> was riding it through Ballarat, and Sarah and I were sitting there. We had to call RACV, and honestly, we didn't even know if the RAC, um the car had insurance because it was donated. Oh, of course, yeah. And so the guy came, and he was like, he came like half an hour later. So we we're just sitting there, and he came, and he you know booted up the um, car again, and he was riding, I think, some sort of like invoice or something. And he saw all the artwork on the car talking about Goodwill hunting. He's like, what is this? And I was like, oh, my last leg of the day, we're riding from Adelaide to Melbourne for this amazing um, camp um, charity. And this was just just top, top it all. He was like, well, do you know what? This is on this is on us. Just write a really good review. Can you write a, just a good review for RACV and don't worry about paying for the call out? Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, and I was just like, oh, people are so awesome. Yeah. And I was already so overwhelmed with emotion Mm. and gratitude and here comes this guy being so, you know, helpful again. I was just like, oh, people are just just really, 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 really cool. And so that last day was just a beautiful day. It was like 25 and sunny. Me, Jimmy and, and Nick just pretty much rolled all the way into our park. We arrived like exactly three o'clock mm. and I arrive and there's like hundred plus people there and they had gotten their hands onto this big, huge blow up rainbow arch that I was to ride under mm. and it was like the finish line. And it was awesome. Like Santa, Santa Lee had found it and they had given it to someone who'd given it to someone and, um, much milk bars so Sarah's Cafe made all this food and there was all rainbow food and there were, everyone was wearing their third wheel tops. And these are like some people I had never met in my life before. They had just found the campaign. Um, like one of the girls had texted Sarah and said, what's Angela's favourite food? And Sarah's like, oh, 
she's really obsessed with crunchy nectarines, but it's got to be crunchy. And the girls, okay, so she's so specific. I'm so sorry. I know. I'm such a weirdo, but if yeah, no one's going to send me nectarines, it's got to be crunchy. And um, she came with a bag of crunchy nectarines, and I'd never met her in my life. And she said, oh, hey, Ange, like, well done. Um, I just got something for you. And it was so thoughtful and so nice. And people from, you know, high school that I hadn't spoken to for like four years were all there mm. with their third-world tops. And I didn't even know they had been following the campaign. And um, literally just people from everywhere. It was, yeah. it was, again, when I was already so emotional, I was just overwhelmed by one the organisation of the finish line was just mm. so amazing and perfect and but also the coming together of people of from different backgrounds and hetero people and people from the LGBTIQ community and it was just such a happy place to be. Yeah, like a real celebration. It was a real, it was just the perfect ending to a great campaign, really. How were the next few days after you, oh, like after for you in terms of coming from you know, like that, obviously that massive high and obviously your body has just been through, through so much. Like what did that next few days look like for you? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Like I hit a pretty big wall both physically and mentally. Yeah. After campaigning, people think it's only five and a half days, but it really started three months before. Yeah. Like I had pretty much stopped the um, accepting any gigs for the food truck over that time just so I could do this and it the thing is that I'm not I'm so not used to being I don't care about being in the limelight or not but because the campaign was all of, about me mm. it was a lot of um me having to be places or having to be the spokesperson and me having to do a lot of the things and like I said before there was a so much support like just incredible amounts of support that I the next day I was like it was just finished. Yeah. But then I was left still with this, this like overwhelming feeling of needing to thank every single person that I met on the way. And that was just a really, that was really heavy kind of mm-hmm. to have to carry and think about all the time being like, I'm, I hope they know how thankful I am. I hope this person knows. I hope they think that I'm not, you know, taking advantage and all these other things. And so um, it was, I remember riding out to Nick and Sarah's the day after and I couldn't keep my eyes open, first of all. I was literally mm-hmm. sleeping every, like I'd wake up for five minutes and then fall asleep whilst trying to hold a conversation with Sarah. Like in all, like I was sleeping on the floor and then sleeping on the couch and then like I'd wake up in the toilet and find myself somewhere else. Like I was just, didn't realise I was so tired, but I clearly was emotionally and physically just. Just drained. Yeah, like yeah. really smashed and. Even to the day, to this day, I don't think I've ever, I don't feel content with the amount of gratitude that I've sent out. Um, but it was, yeah, it was definitely a big, it was like going from 100 to zero. Yeah. Just because the high was so high and the low was just like like this weird emptiness. Like that was, like that was it. Yeah, it's just like the finality of it. Yeah, like there's. There was nothing else really. Like the food truck obviously was still going and I'm was still equally as passionate about that. But yeah. it was yeah, it was just so much taking and then nothing. 
When you look back now, are there things that you think I like if someone came to me for advice and were wanting to do something similar, are there certain things that people told you along the way that you would then tell someone else that might be looking at doing something similar? Like what kind of advice would you give to somebody who was thinking about embarking on a similar sort of physical um, activity as a charity or an awareness raising campaign? Yeah. So I learned so much Mm. because everything, because I'd never done one before, like I said, at the start, everything I did was learning, Mm. winging it and hoping that it was the right thing to do. It was like, you know, I was having to email lots of corporations to hopefully get a major sponsor financially um, and I just didn't know, like, what language to use. I was like, I don't know how to approach this. Do I just go mm-hmm. in and say, hi? This yeah, it's like, to whom it may concern. Like, yeah, right? And I was like, as per my last email. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, I don't even know where to start. But, again, there was nothing for me to lose and everything for me to learn. Right. That's my pretty much how I live my, my life. I'm not really afraid to do much because I'm not – I don't really have a fear of failure. I don't have a fear of looking like a failure, so I just do it anyway. Mm. And I think that's one of the most important things, I guess, is to it's okay to not know what you're doing. Mm. There's always people, people that will support you and people that understand the context of it all. Um, one thing I did learn is that if you are going to ask for corporate sponsorships, you have to do it really early because a lot of them come back with, having already budgeted their a lot of their finances for the whole financial year. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so that was a lot of their what they said in response. It's like, oh, we've already budgeted for some – we've already exceeded our budget for this. Yeah, because I guess they would have like most businesses would have some sort of corporate responsibility or social impact yeah. um, budget and if they've already allocated that then – yeah, I guess there's yeah. not much they can do. Yeah, so in that sense, if you want a big corporation behind you, um, I would say get onto it early. Mm-hmm. The other thing I realised was that, weirdly enough, it's the small business that have the biggest pockets. Yeah. In terms of the, the most generous pockets. Mm. And like, probably less process yeah. on donating or totally. providing. Yeah. Like, I might do it just out of goodwill, really. Mm. But they, um, I realised that a lot of small business owners were, more than happy to donate mm. larger sums, like 500s or 1,000s. Mm. And, you know, your bet of getting like 10 of those is much greater than getting, say, $10,000 from One a bank or something. Mm. So, you know, might have ulterior motives of why they're donating. And it doesn't matter really if that's whatever, the money goes to the same place. But when you have the small sure. business owners that donate, they want, they're doing it for the cause. And probably not asking a huge amount in return. You know, like you said, the guy from the mechanic or the roadside assistant, it was like, just leave us a good Google review or. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. That's all we wanted. He just said, just give us a positive review. That's it. Yeah. And you realize that um, I, another thing is that um, a learning was that although big companies, although companies sometimes, which is a bit contradicts what I said before, but not everyone has an ulterior motive. Mm. And you kind of got to give everyone the benefit of the doubt that they mm-hmm. are actually wanting to do good and just accept and appreciate that. Yeah. Um, the other thing I learned is, I guess, the politics of uh, brands and companies. Um, I'm going to say this as diplomatic as possible, but <laughs> at the end of the day, um, 
the bigger brands are still brands mm-hmm. and so they still have um have reputations to hold yeah and so um things like competitor brands and all that stuff still comes into play oh so like having you know um I don't know, a coffee brand and then having trying to have another coffee brand and that being like a bit of a conflict. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that because at the end of the day, they still have to run a business. Yeah, of course. Still, yeah. You know, puts them in or out of play, if that makes yeah. sense. So yeah. that's something to also consider, which I never considered. I just thought that mm. you know, everyone when it comes to this stuff, everyone just drops everything and bands together and it's a really happy time. Yeah. And really, in essence there's still guidelines for brands and companies and things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in that sense, that's something to remember. It's also like random, but I didn't know about it and it didn't occur to me. Um, but I think if you, you know, if you don't come from a fundraising or a charity or a social enterprise or even just in a um, a corporate position where you are in charge of deciding, you know, what things you sponsor and what things your staff get involved in, it's, it's just not something that would be on your radar. It's not until you do projects or initiatives like this. So you go, oh yeah, I never actually thought about that. Yes, it makes sense, but it's just not something I've ever had to factor into my decision-making, I guess. Totally. Yeah. It was yeah. like, it's, again, it's beyond me. I never organized one, but it's a mm. great thing to, to know for next time. And then I think the last thing, the best thing is to learn to ask for help. Yeah. And I think a lot of us play this kind of game with ourselves where we want to see how far we can go on our own. Yes. Um, yeah, because we just want to, I don't know, feel like we've accomplished it all by ourselves. And, and if we did it all by ourselves, then it's a greater accomplishment than if we had done it with some help. Mm. And that was a real learning because I was like, no, I, I really can't do this on my own. Like I just, mm-hmm. and sometimes it was like, is it really worth wanting to do this all on my own to ruin an opportunity to be on say the radio to get more exposure for stand-up events? Cause that really contradicts the whole campaign. Cause the whole campaign was meant to be about goodwill hunting and stand-up events, not about me. Mm. And if I didn't ask for help because I wanted to make it all about me, then what am I in? What's this campaign really for? Is it like a social status thing, or is it actually for a good cause? Yeah. yeah. Is it? Am I? What am I actually fueling here? Is it the charity? Is it my ego? And yeah. sometimes, like, you have to have a little bit of that, I guess, because that will get you onto the radio, onto those things. But it's just about having that balance to be like, what is really at the crux of this? Am I doing this for the right reason? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that's that was a huge learning. And, mm. like, I never was in it for a self-accomplishment thing. Mm. Um, but I'd imagine that some people have been or may, maybe think that way. Yes. But you really want to make social impact and if you really do want to leave the world in a better place, it, you, you need help and it's a community effort. It's always going to be a community effort. Yeah. Like you're never going to change the world. One person's never going to change the world. Yeah. The world is going to change the world. Yeah, absolutely. It requires a community. And so asking for help was the best thing I ever did because people were willing if you just asked. And that was probably my biggest take home is to be willing to ask and not feel like I sometimes feel like I'm using my friends and that I, I get it. I hate using people. Mm. But a lot of the time you realise that they don't think that way. 
And I think too, I've spoken with other guests about this before. It's sometimes that people go, well, I want to be able to contribute, but I can't do a bike ride or I can't start a whole business. So you're actually giving other people this amazing opportunity to donate and or to, um, you know, contribute or to volunteer. And they actually walk away feeling really great about themselves. So you actually, by saying yes to people's offers, you're actually giving them this really beautiful gift to feel a little bit better about themselves. I feel like they're contributing in a way that fits into their budget or their lifestyle or the parameters for their own life. Yeah, totally. Like it, um, I think giving, asking and stuff gives people a feeling that they are contributing yeah. really greatly to society. Yeah. Um, in, especially for people that feel like they aren't brave enough to start a whole campaign. Yeah. They want to help. And they don't want to just help by giving money. They mm. want to help by actually in, enriching the experience itself. So yeah. for the people that donated accommodation, I bet, and this is just a theory, that they felt so good about it. And they really oh, absolutely. To the society around them. Yeah. And I think too, depending, you know, as I said, depending on where you're at in life, now is not always going to be the time where you can just drop everything and start a charity or start a social enterprise or, you know, take five days off work and and ride from state to state. I've had people say to me, you know, like, oh, I listen to the podcast and I feel like I'm not doing anything to contribute. And there's all these amazing people out there doing stuff and you know and I'm like no there's actually so many things you can do it's like go and donate to one of the guests on the show or go and buy from their shop or go and follow their their social media pages like we the the economy wouldn't work if we all were trying to run social enterprises and charities and not-for-profits we need all the different parts of of our economy and our um society but it's like there are ways that you can contribute that fit within where you're at right now in life and that's not to say in 10 years that situation would change like you not be you may not be in a position in 10 years to do a, an initiative like you did at the start of this year but you were then so you yeah. did it then you know yeah and also the thing like you said at the start if we all tried to start a charity to help the same cause we're really we're not being efficient mm. at social changes because mm. we're all it, it then becomes like a mini competition like mm. talking back about brands, if we're all doing the same thing, then it's like, oh, should I donate to this person or this person or this person or this person? Mm. And that's why I was like, I'm not going to start another one, but I'm going to support someone that knows what they're doing and mm. than me. Yeah. Because what's the point of starting a new thing that already exists where people are doing it so well already? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm all about, you know, like what you said at starting that, you know, we don't all have to be starting something, but we mm. all contributing to something where someone else is doing it better and can make it bigger than we ever think we can. Yeah. That's a really amazing um, note to finish on. And if people want to find out more and check out like the pictures and the work that you did with Goodwill Hunting, where's the best place for people to find out more info? Yeah. So if you want to find out about Goodwill Hunting, the page is pretty inactive at the moment, um, but it's Goodwill Hunting, so Goodwill with a G-O-O-D-W-H-E-E-L underscore hunting. So it's a play on words of the movie itself. And that's um, your Instagram? That's the Goodwill Hunting one. But yep. Instagram where you can pretty much find everything else that I do mm-hmm. um, is Ange, A-N-G underscore foot, so mm-hmm. F-O-T. Um, Amazing. Yeah, but 
that's pretty much me. And if people want to find out more about stand-up events and the work that they're doing, they can get to that through the Goodwill Hunting website? Yes, 100%. Okay, yep. awesome. So that's goodwillhunting.com.au and we'll put all those links um, in the show notes so that people can go and check out. I know on your Instagram for Goodwill Hunting, um, all the story highlights as a kind of like day-by-day breakdown so that people can see um, the, all the pictures and the videos from the work. But on the website, there's also um, some more information about the people that helped you out and to also um, learn a bit more about stand-up events. So we will pop all of that um, in the show notes for people to check out. Now, I know you also mentioned, Ange, before we wrap up that you've recently started your own podcast. And if you wanted to let people know about that, because I know a lot of the people listening are avid podcast listeners and always open for recommendations. Yeah. So I started a podcast, uh, like I said before as well, it's very much a memoir of my life. So I interview people that have helped and shaped um, me to be who I am and also Mm -hmm all the things that I've done in my life because mm. although Goodwill Hunting was one part I've actually done a whole bunch of other things which has been very fun but yeah. um, that's Brain Farts um, and the most recent episode was in me interviewing my dad about how he escaped the Vietnam War on a boat. Um, wow. So yeah, he that's a, that'll be a three-part uh, episode but he pretty much tells all about the whole um, communist and boat life experience. That's incredible. Well, we'll definitely pop some links to that in the show notes as well um, so that people can go and have a listen. Ange, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. I know, um, you know, we've taken up a bit of your time this afternoon, but you've been so generous with sharing your story and um, really giving some amazing insights into how the it worked, but also some of those learnings, which I think, you know, even when you were just saying things then, I was just learning things as you were saying and um, you know, around the fundraising and working with corporates and things like that. So thank you so much for those amazing insights and um, yeah, for taking the time to chat with me this afternoon and, and sharing um, some more information about Goodwill Hunting. Um, as I mentioned, we'll put uh, all those links in the show notes so you can check out Angie's page, the Goodwill Hunting. If you think there's someone in your world that would be interested in Angie's story, feel free to share this episode with them. And while you're in your app, we'd love it if you would leave a review for the podcast. It's really good um, to allow other people who are thinking about listening to the show to hear from you what you think and hopefully get some more listeners so people um, like Angie and our other guests can have their stories shared wider and wider throughout the country. So that would be really amazing if if I could ask for two seconds of your time to do that. I would be very grateful. As it, as I said, it's an amazing way to get more and more people listening to the podcast so that we can get the stories of our guests out there. So thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Bold Platform. I'm looking forward to having you back for the next episode. And Ange, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. Congratulations on the podcast. It's such a cool initiative. So thank you.